0: Wills can be strange and complicated things. Uh, T.M. Zink was a lawyer from Iowa in the United States who died in 1930. He left $35,000 to be placed in a trust for 75 years and the accumulated sum was to be used to build the Zinc womanless library. Female authors and artists were forbidden and no women were allowed to contribute in any way. Every entrance would bear the sign, no women allowed. And in the same will, he left his daughter just five dollars. They can be strange things, can't they, wills? Well, our passage this morning deals with wills, inheritances and death. Not normal subjects, really, for us on a Sunday morning. But we'll be reassured as we look at our passage this morning that actually uh, it's there for a reason. And it's there to point us to our own heavenly inheritance something so much better than this world can offer and it's going to be a reminder again not to go back to what we once knew not to go back to what we were but to press hold uh, sorry to take hold uh, of what God has taken hold of us for to press on so the first thing we see in our passage this morning that is our inheritance is secure because of his death I'll read to us again verses 15 to 22 Indeed, under the first law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, do you notice there in verse 1, we get this rather strange phrase. Therefore, he, that's Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's a bit strange, that, like I said, we don't often talk about inheritances, do we? And what does it really mean when it says that Christ has brought us an inheritance? I mean, normally we're thinking of money, aren't we? We're thinking of estate. Well, if you flip over to Hebrews 11, uh, verses 8 to 10, we get a bit of a clue. So it says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then at the beginning of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, we're told that angels, are they not ministering spirits sent out to serve uh, uh, serve those uh, who are to inherit salvation? So, in Hebrews, it seems to be this idea of a city that we're looking forward to, like Abraham was. But it also seems to be the idea of salvation that we're to inherit. It gets even more complicated as we look at other parts of scripture. On the back of your notice sheet, you'll see Numbers 18, 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion, any, any allotment. Uh, not allotment like a you know place to do vegetables, but you know section. Uh, among them, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people. And then in Lamentations three twenty four, the Lord is my portion, there my soul says uh, my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. There it seems to be God Himself is the inheritance. So we've got this idea that it's a place, a city that we're looking forward to. We've got the idea that it's salvation, but we've also got the idea that it's God Himself. So I think the best way to think about our inheritance is this. Our inheritance really, as Hebrews speaks about it, as the Bible speaks about it, is Christians enjoying God in the new creation. Christians enjoying God in the new creation. That's our inheritance. That's what we're looking forward to. If you remember our Bible overview, that basically is God's people in God's place enjoying his rule and blessing. That's what we're looking forward to, God eternity with him we have a down payment by the spirit we'll look at that a bit later on but it's him that we're looking forward to spending eternity with him so our hope really is the hope of glory what all the ages have looked forward to and Jesus brings us that Jesus wins us our inheritance if you like he earns us our inheritance how? Well, we see two reasons in our passage. The first is because his death has paid the price of the old. His death has paid the price of the old. And we've seen that mainly uh, there in verses uh, verse uh, 15 and 16. You see, the penalty of the old covenant that we've been looking at was curse and death. Deuteronomy 27, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, 26, says, curse be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. So in other words, if you didn't keep the whole of the law, you were under a curse. You were guilty and deserved death. But it says here that a death has occurred already, that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What it's saying there is that Jesus took that penalty In his own death. So all the death and curse that the old would have placed on us, Jesus took. So by taking the penalty of the old, he redeems us from those transgressions. So we often think, don't we, about Jesus paying the price for our own sin. And that's right. But he's also paying the price of sin in light of the old covenant. He pays the price that was due to that, if you like. And without his death, there would be no end to the old covenant. It would carry on. But because the ultimate death has taken place, because the curse has been taken, he can say that the old is over. Jesus has taken that curse and judgment. So we're not under the old covenant anymore. Because Jesus has paid the price by his death. But we also see here that Jesus' death has brought into force the new covenant. Jesus' death has brought into force the new covenant. The reason we see that is there's a bit of a play on words there in verse 16. So it says, for where there is a, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Now, that word will there is actually the same word as the word covenant that's used all the way through the rest of the, uh, the passage and the, through the rest of Hebrews. So we sort of get that idea when you use the word testament, So you know we've got the Old Testament and the New Testament That's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant And you also have a last will and testament It's sort of the same idea, it's the same word And what it's saying here is that Jesus' covenant with us, the New Covenant, is like a will And a will needs a death to happen to put it into force, doesn't it? In exceptional circumstances it could happen that you didn't have the death So if you think about the prodigal son uh, he goes to his dad, doesn't he, and says, I want my inheritance now. But really, sort of saying there, well, I, I want us to act as though you're dead, Dad. Can you imagine how uh, offensive that must have been? But in normal circumstances, for a will to come into action, it needs a death to take place. Well, Jesus' death brought the new covenant into force. His blood was the death that occurred for the will to happen, for the inheritance to be unlocked, if you like. His blood enabled the forgiveness that was promised in the new covenant. If you remember in the passages before, we saw that one of the big marks of the new covenant was the forgiveness of sin. Well, that can't happen without Jesus' death. So his death brings in the new covenant in the same way that someone's death sets their will in force. He says it himself in Luke 22, verse 20, again on the back of your notice sheets, when talking about the Lord's Supper. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It needs his death. Or again, Matthew 26:28, sort of parallel passage. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what he's saying there is that without his blood, without his death, there is no new covenant. It's not like God can just suddenly change deals. Actually, it needs Jesus' death to end the old and to bring in the new. Now, that might seem a rather strange idea, this idea of the new covenant being like a will. But he's arguing with people who are aware of the old covenant and how the old covenant happened. And his argument goes on to basically say that the first covenant was also brought in through blood. Uh, So do you see there in uh, verse 18? Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And he goes and spells out all the ways that blood was used in the first covenant. So what he's saying here is this idea of blood being needed for a covenant is not a new idea. God hasn't sort of changed how he's doing things. And verse 18 to 21 explain how even the first covenant was sealed with blood. Do you notice that the words are very similar, aren't they? So uh, if you look in verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. That was the first covenant, wasn't it, as Moses sprinkled them with blood. But Jesus picks up on those words in the Last Supper. With the new covenant. It's like he's deliberately mimicking that language, saying there's the old covenant and there's the new covenant. Both brought in with blood. So this really is a new beginning. It's a new start. And Moses here doesn't just shed blood. He sprinkles blood to purify the people and the vessels used in worship. Now could you imagine, that must have been a very strange idea uh, if you were under the old covenant. So normally with the idea of cleansing and, and cleaning and purifying, you normally go with something that makes things a bit cleaner, don't you? So you know, if you've got your washing machine, you know, you put your Daz, do people still use Daz? Daz in your washing machine, so the last time I bought washing powder, isn't it? Uh, put Daz in your washing machine, and it cleans it. You use water to clean things. You use detergents. But here they were cleansed with blood. That must have been a really weird idea for them. Because actually that seems to make you more dirty, doesn't it? Uh, Cleaning someone with blood. You wouldn't dream of putting blood in your washing machine, would you? But it makes sense when we see it through New Testament eyes, doesn't it? Why God was doing it that way. Because we understand that actually this points forward to Jesus' blood. That cleanses us on the inside. Not to make us physically clean, but to make us spiritually clean on the inside. And his big point at the end then in verse 22 is that forgiveness always needs this blood, doesn't it? And always has. So indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So he's saying that the principle was there in the first covenant, that you need blood for forgiveness. No blood, no forgiveness. But Jesus has shed his blood in the new covenant so that we can have forgiveness and no greater price could be paid for it, could it? He's won us our inheritance of that forgiveness of that right relationship with God in eternity which we couldn't enjoy without our sins being forgiven so our inheritance is secure because the price has been paid on the old, cancelling its curse we can't end up back in the old covenant and accidentally mess it all up again as they did because the new has been put into place with his blood priceless blood of infinite value without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness but what forgiveness must have been won if christ shed his blood if the son of god died so he's saying there that he has brought us our inheritance and it is secure he's crossed all the i's no crossed all the t's and dotted all the i's the old is gone And the new is in. And that's secure. So our inheritance is secure because of his death. And then secondly, we see that our salvation is secure because of his one sacrifice. This is from verses 23 to 28. I'll just read us verse 23 to start with. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What it's saying here is that Christ has made heaven ready for his people. That's really what it's saying. Christ has made heaven ready for his people. As blood purified the tabernacle... Uh, That was the copy of the true tabernacle, which is heaven itself. So blood purifies the true tabernacle, the blood of Christ. Now, it's not here that heaven is unholy and sort of needs purifying that way. It's not that it's sort of dirty and needs cleansing. The problem is that we are unholy and we are going there. So the high priest, if you think about it, with the old covenant, he had to go in and purify the furniture of the tabernacle why did he have to do that so that he could then go in and go into the holy place the sacrifices were done so that one man could go in so all the purifying that took place around the day of atonement was so that an unholy person could go in that's what all those sacrifices were about so the purification was there to accommodate sinners namely the high priest But here we see that Christ has gone before us into the true tabernacle. And he's purified it, not because it was unclean, but because we are. So effectively what it's saying is that Christ has gone and made heaven ready. He's purified it, he's made it ready for us by his own blood. And we see how he's done it in verse 24. For Christ has not entered... Sorry, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The way that he does this, the way that he purifies heaven and makes it ready for us, is by appearing before God the Father. Now you might have expected it to sort of say, he sprinkled heaven uh, with his blood. Now if you stop and think about that The the metaphysics of that are quite mind boggling aren't they So thankfully it doesn't say that What it says is that the way that he purifies heaven The way that he purifies the true tabernacle Is by being there before God for us So he if you like opens up the way For us to stand before God the Father Through himself It's almost as though he stands there before God the Father as a visible reminder of his own sacrifice. So that God can see what Christ has done. So we get this weird thing, we talked didn't we about Christ being seated because his work is finished. But Hebrews also tells us that Christ is standing. These are sort of images to help us understand what he's doing. You get both at once. He stood before the Father on our behalf. God can see The wounds in his hands. God can see the price that he's paid. He stands, if you like, as a testimony to his own death on our behalf. It's a bit like uh, the way that uh, when sometimes husbands go away on business trips, you know, their wife might give them a, a picture to take with them, you know, to put in their hotel room. Why do they do that? Well, they want their husband to remember while they're away that they're married, don't they? They want to remember that they have a wife back at home. It's the same, really, with a wedding ring. That's one of the reasons why we wear wedding rings to remember that we're not that you forget, would you? But, um, to remember that we're married. It's a, a way of sort of seeing it before you. And in the same way, Christ stands before the Father, pleading His own blood on our behalf, because God's anger is is done away with by Christ's sacrifice. And he's never in danger of forgetting it because Christ is stood before him. Not that God would forget, don't get me wrong, but this is for our benefit. This is for us to understand what's happening. That we might know that God will not forget because Christ is standing before the Father on our behalf. It's there to assure us that we're not going to be forgotten, that we're not going to go back. But we need to be clear exactly what he is doing as he stands before the Father. Because there are some misunderstandings, aren't there? And that's uh, what the rest of our section really deals with. We need to be clear on what's happening because there have been confusion, uh, even down through uh, the ages in the church. The first thing that we need to see is that there are no repeats happening here because once was enough. Uh, have a look uh, there at uh, verse uh, 25. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What it's saying here is it's not as if God's anger needs to be satisfied again and again. It is not as though God keeps getting angry at our sin and Jesus needs to be there to keep calming him down. All his people's sins, past, present and future, were laid on Christ at the cross. God has no reason to be angry with us again, because Jesus' death paid it all all of it past, present and future. So there's no anger left for God to be angry with, because it, it was taken out of the cross. Because it's not as though He's there to be sacrificed again and again for every new sin. You get that idea sometimes. Yeah, you know, every time you sin, you know, Christ is sacrificed again. Could you imagine how many times Christ would have had to have been sacrificed from the beginning of the world? That's His point. If every single sin, new sin, had to be paid for again and again. No, Christ's death was of such value that once was enough. God looked at history, gathered all his people's sins together, and he put them on Christ. Now, in these last days, on the cross. (laughs) So no sin has slipped through God's fingers that suddenly will need a new sacrifice. All of it has been paid by Christ. Once was enough. So when we share the Lord's Supper later on, that's not a repeat It's not as if we've got sins that now need another sacrifice. We do it as a reminder. That's why as a church we don't do Mass. Which portrays itself as a repeat to sort of cover over sins that you've committed since you became a Christian. No once was enough. Christ paid for it all. So we just remember him with the bread and the wine. The second thing that we see is that there are no repeats because he was human. Verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What it's saying here is that Christ is human. And human beings die once. Now, Jesus is God too, isn't he? So he's a special case. But as a human being, he died once. He's not going to die again. Because human beings, what's appointed for us is once to die, and then what comes afterwards. And I think the devil's worked really hard to undermine this, if you think about it. This idea that this is what happens with all human beings. He makes people, for example, ignore the fact that they'll die, for a start. If you think about this one verse... It, It's almost the opposite of what people believe, isn't it? The fact that talking about death is such a morbid subject for us sort of proves the point, doesn't it? The fact that we'll die is true for every single one of us, yet nobody likes to talk about it, do they? How many of us would rather talk about the weather? Or something else? And we fill our lives with things to distract ourselves from this truth. It's often said, if you leave a person alone with nothing to do, no TV, no books, no nothing... Their thoughts will soon turn to their mortality. And actually we have all these things to distract us. We fill our lives with entertainment, meals, music, savings. Also that we don't have to think about death. But this is true. It's a point for man wants to die. We all will die and we need to think about what comes next. The second of three things the devil does to make us not believe this. He makes people disbelieve that there's no judgment. So once to die, then the judgment. The doctrine of hell is under attack, isn't it? Even so-called evangelicals too. Uh, A a so-called evangelical called Rob Bell a few years ago denied that hell was the final destination of anybody. That in the end, love wins and everybody makes it to heaven. Even John Stott a few years earlier denied the eternity of hell. But he did believe that it was a real place and there was punishment for sin. And our general belief in the country, if people believe in heaven, they generally believe everybody is going there. Unless you sort of push them up for a minute and talk talk about Adolf Hitler or dictators and things. But the general belief is that there isn't really judgment afterwards. And it's understandable why it's under attack, isn't it? If the devil can make us disbelieve that judgment is coming, then we'll live along those lines, won't we? There's no one as arrogant and rotten as the man who believes he'll never get caught, Is there? We'll not see the urgency of Christ's claims on our life unless we see them in the light of judgment. We'll never understand what Christ has done for us by dying on the cross to take that judgment unless we understand the horror of it. But there's another tack that the devil takes to try and make us disbelieve that. He makes people believe that we don't die just once. There are plenty of religions in the world that teach reincarnation and rebirth. And if you think for a second If that's not true How cruel a lie it is It tells people that they have a second chance When they don't Mormonism teaches something similar too That you sort of get a second chance When you die to accept Christ But it's not true And the devil's got people thinking That they're just doing a rehearsal Of their life Don't worry by the way They'll just go to the Victorian fair (laughs) So don't panic we don't get another chance to get it right. But the world tries to tell us that we do. And here is something where we, as materialists, actually have some common ground. We need to make this one life count, don't we? That we live. We'd only get one roll of the dice. Think about that in terms of the opportunities that you have in this life because you won't have them again. As the old saying goes, only one life it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Christ did make the most of his one life. He lived as a human being. He died as a human being, even though he was God. But he died once. That was the point of our passage. Like every other human being. And we too will die once. So we need to make the most of our life. The last thing that we see is there are no repeats. Because next time he's coming for salvation. Have a look at the end of verse 28. He will appear a second time Not to deal with sin But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him So Christ is coming again But not to do a repeat performance It's not like he's going to go up through it all again I don't know if you've started hearing those annoying Christmas songs uh, Yet uh, I, I went to Leeds a few weeks ago And uh, it, was, it was only October And they were playing Driving Home for Christmas I thought, how far are you driving? It's really quite a way, isn't it? But I think my most annoying Christmas song uh, is Christa Berg, A Spaceman Came Travelling. You'll know it if you hear it. It's like, la, 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 la. You get it every Christmas. Now, apart from the fact it has aliens at the nativity scene, if you listen to the words, um, it's got these lyrics that basically happen at the end. It says, oh, the whole world is waiting, waiting to hear the song again. There are thousands standing on the edge of the world, and a star is moving somewhere, and the time is nearly here. The song will begin once again, to a baby's cry. What he's basically saying in the song is that, you know, Jesus will come back again, but as a baby, and will live his whole life again and go through it. And there are people who believe that. It's quite crazy, really. But Jesus is not coming back as a baby. We're not getting another Christmas. Because he did that last time. We're not getting another Easter. Because he did that last time. He's coming this time to saving uh, those who are waiting for him. When Jesus returns it won't be to go to the cross again. It will be to appear in majesty and glory. Every knee will bow to him. Not just kings and shepherds. Everyone. And all these things mean that we can be sure. Of our salvation that's coming. Nothing more needs to be done. No more sacrifices. No more deaths on the cross. No more repeats. The next thing on God's agenda is Christ to return to save us. To put into action what he finished last time. To finally save all his people. So everything that needs to happen for our salvation has happened. So our salvation is secure. It's already done. The transaction has happened. It doesn't need repeating. Because of his one sacrifice. What's ongoing in our passage is remembering what he's done and waiting. And that brings us to our last point, which is briefer. (coughs) Eagerly wait for him. Do you see that there in verse 28? He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly wait for him. It's not a command in our passage to eagerly wait, but it's an implication, isn't it? Jesus is coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for his return. That means that the author's description here really is, is explaining what a Christian is. Because Jesus is coming back to save Christians. So for the author, a, a true Christian is one who is waiting eagerly for Christ's return. Why? Well it takes us back to where we started, doesn't it? The idea of inheritance. Inheritance. We're waiting still for our inheritance, aren't we? We don't have possession of it. So Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14 on the back of your sheets. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What it's saying there is that God has given us the Spirit because we don't yet have our final inheritance. But with the Spirit inside us we long for that city whose foundations are built by God himself. With the Spirit inside us we feel that we're never truly at home here don't we? We're strangers and pilgrims here. The world doesn't quite seem to get us as Christians does it? We groan with the Spirit inside us for the renewal of the whole creation, the Bible says. Because we're longing for that inheritance. And we'll long for his return in this world as Christians as well, because we'll be persecuted. That's what we see through the book of Hebrews. We will have it worse off here, but we'll know that there's better to come. The Hebrews knew this experience, again just over the page, Hebrews 10, 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What he's talking about there is our inheritance. They were willing to have their stuff taken now because they were longing for that place that was coming, the abiding place, our inheritance, eternity with God. So what are the dangers here for us? Well the danger is that we begin to believe the devil's lies That this is all there is, that there's no inheritance coming We stop looking to our heavenly abode and stop waiting for him Because we get too comfy in our own abodes We invest our time and our energy in them Rather than in the better one So this morning, which inheritance are you working for? Are you working for an earthly one or a heavenly one? Are you working to leave a big inheritance to your children or to gain a big inheritance in heaven? You see, if we invest in this world too much, the danger is that we won't want Jesus to come back. We'll want him to stay away because actually we want all the things that we worked for in this world. You might be thinking, well, I want Jesus to come back, but just wait until I've got married. I remember thinking that in the, the week before we got married. It's like, well, come back, but give it a week. yeah? Just We've done a lot of plans. We have those sort of thoughts, don't we? Just wait until after I've had my child. Just wait until I've got my business off the ground. Just wait until the house sale has gone through. And those things can expose what we're really longing for, can't they? But we mustn't cling to those things. Because we have something better, so much better coming. We can stop reaching out to the world around us as well, can't we? There's another danger. Because when we stick our necks out, we often get shot at, don't we? And if there's no inheritance coming, then it makes sense to minimise our pain in this life, doesn't it? Keep your heads down. But if there is a greater inheritance coming, then we can be bold, like the Hebrews were at first. Knowing that something better is coming. We'll take the pain, because we know that this isn't all that there is. So eagerly waiting looks like this. A loose grip on this world, and a strong grip on heaven. Being willing to take risks for God in this world, and endure pain... Because we know we have something better coming. Our inheritance. Eternity with God. Not just five dollars in some crazy man's will. But eternity enjoying God. Knowing pure joy in the new creation. Because of him. Does that thrill your heart this morning? Well let's pray that God would make us long all the more for his son's return. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the good things that you've given us in this world. Father, thank you for families, for houses, for food, for drink, for jobs, for all the different things that we can enjoy. But Father, help us to hold on to them lightly and help us to hold on to you firmly. Father, we pray that like the Hebrews, that we would be looking to that better and abiding possession, our inheritance. Father, help us to long for Christ's return Uh, to uh, bring this world to an end, to enjoy eternity with you. Thank you that he has done all that is necessary. And keep us looking to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.